God didn't even choose to make all of Abraham's children his children. He chose Isaac over Ishmael. And then he chose Jacob over Esau. And when God gives us, or Paul gives us God's reason in verse 11, he says, it was done before they were born, before they had done anything good or bad. It was done not because of works, but because of God and God's purpose. And what Paul is saying is, God's reason is that God is sovereign. God sovereignly chose Isaac, and God sovereignly chose Jacob. Now, that may not hit you with much impact if you're not Jewish. So let me bring it a little closer to home. God's sovereignty is displayed in His choice of you. Let me show you some passages just to set the table for that. Look at Acts chapter 13 and verse 48. Paul is preaching in the city of Antioch, and it says in verse 48, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Who believed? As many as had been appointed to eternal life. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians, the first chapter, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. And verse 5, He predestined us to adoption as sons. Verse 11, also we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to His purpose. He predestined and chose us before the foundation of the world. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13 says, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 10. Paul says, For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen. Paul doesn't say, I endure all this for the sake of those who might believe. He says, I endure all this suffering for the sake of those who are chosen. And Paul says about himself in Galatians 1.15, God set me apart from my mother's womb and called me. You see, God is still sovereignly choosing and calling individuals today. Now, how do you respond to that idea? Well, that's what Paul wants to know. Because in verse 14, he says, what shall we say then? What do you say to this idea that God is sovereign and God chooses before the foundation of the world? You say, well, I'm not sure that's fair. Well, that's what Paul assumed you would say. Because in verse 14, he says, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? 
Does this mean that God is unjust? And then he rephrases the question again in verse 19 from a little different angle. He says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? So the question is, if God chooses, is God being fair? And why does God still hold us responsible if he's sovereign? Now those are important questions. But what I want you to notice as we go through this passage is how Paul deals with this issue. Because Paul deals with this issue the way you're going to have to deal with this issue and the way I'm going to have to deal with this issue. Because he doesn't bring in any logic. He doesn't bring in any human reasoning. He doesn't bring in any, any experts. He doesn't bring in any human understanding. He just quotes scripture. In fact, there are at least eight direct quotes from the Old Testament in the remainder of this chapter. You see, Paul doesn't try to help us understand the sovereignty of God. You know why? Because you can't. And so what he does is he gives us a solid basis for it, which is the Word of God. He just says, it's true, and to show you it's true, I'm going to show you the Word of God. And so the question is, God isn't unjust, is He? And Paul answers immediately in verse 14 by saying, may it never be. No way. Good heavens, no. And then he gives us two illustrations from the book of Exodus. The first is Moses in verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now you can trace that quote back to Exodus 33, 19. Israel is at Mount Sinai. And in chapter 32 of Exodus, while God was giving the law to Moses, the children of Israel were turning back to the idolatry of Egypt. And so on that occasion, God said to Moses, I'm going to destroy all these people and I'm going to establish a new nation through you. And that's when Moses said those words, if you won't forgive them, then blot me out of your book. And then in Exodus 33, God says to Moses, go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I'm not going in your midst because you're an obstinate people and if I was in your midst for just one moment, I would destroy you. And Moses says to God, if your presence doesn't go with us, then don't lead us up. And God says, my presence shall go with you. Now at that point, I think Moses has a few questions in his mind. He's thinking, you know, I got some problems with God's faithfulness to his promises because he made these promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and now he's telling me I'm going to wipe these people out and start over. And so Moses is having the same question marks that Paul raises in Romans chapter 9. And so if you'll read the end of chapter 33 of Exodus, you'll find that Moses asks two requests of God. He says in verse 13, Let me know your ways. God, I want to understand how you operate because I'm a little confused here. 
And then he makes a second request in verse 18. He says, God, show me your glory. Now, in response to that request, show me your glory, God says to Moses, you can't see my face and live. So I'm going to answer that partially. I'm going to let you see the backside of my glory as I'm passing by. And then in response to his other request, which is, show me your ways, God answers with this quote that Paul makes in Romans 9.15, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And what's he saying? I'm God, and I do whatever I want. Now, if you look carefully, you'll notice Moses didn't get either request answered to his satisfaction. God said, show me your glory, and Moses, or Moses said, show me your glory, and God said, I'm going to put you in this little cleft in the rock, and I'm going to put my hand over you, and I'm going to pass by. I'm just going to remove my hand right at the last second and let you see the backside of my glory. So you're just going to get a glimpse of my glory. And then Moses says, well, show me your ways. And God says, I'm going to give you just a glimpse of my ways. And that is, I'm sovereign. And I run the universe. And I do whatever I want. And I will have compassion on whomever I want to. And I'll have mercy on whomever I want to. And then he makes the application in verse 16. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or on the man who runs but on God who has mercy. What's the application? It doesn't depend on man who wills or man who runs. It all depends on God. Now those two phrases, the man who wills and the man who runs, really cover the whole spectrum of man's capacity. Man's will and man's running. Man's purposes and man's power. Man's thoughts and man's actions, man's determination, and man's efforts. Paul says it does not depend on man. It all depends on God. And the children of Israel in Exodus 32 and 33 are the classic example of that. You see, they had seen the plagues in Egypt. They had walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. They had seen a miracle a day. They saw the cloud of of, of God's presence in the daytime. They saw the cloud of fire at night. They saw the manna every morning. They saw miracle after miracle after miracle. Moses goes up on the mountain, and what do they do? Their will was to rebel and run back to Egypt. And so the question is, is there injustice with God? Now, I guarantee you, if you could go back to Exodus 33, to the base of that mountain, nobody was asking for justice. Nobody was saying, God, it's not fair. Treat us justly. Because if God had treated them justly, what would He have done? He would have obliterated them, as He said, and started over with Moses. And then the second illustration is Pharaoh. It's kind of the opposite illustration. It's like Moses uh, parallels Jacob and Pharaoh here parallels Esau. Notice verse 17. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that by my name, or in that, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. 
So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Just as God grants mercy on whomever he wills, he also withholds mercy and hardens whomever he wills. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. You say, well, why would he do that? Well, he tells us in this verse why he did it. He says he did it to demonstrate his power and to proclaim his name throughout the whole earth. I mean, think about it. If, if Pharaoh had complied with Moses, the first time Moses came and said, let my people go, if Pharaoh had said, fine, I'll let them go, we would have had no frogs, no flies, no darkness, no plagues, no Passover, no Red Sea, no miracles, no demonstration of God's power and glory. Paul tells us God is sovereign and God hardened the heart of Pharaoh so that he might display his power and his name throughout the whole earth. Now, interestingly enough, if you go back to the book of Exodus, you'll find that ten times it says, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. But see, that's the dichotomy. You've got God's sovereign plan, and you've got man's choice and man's responsibility. You see, man's down here in his little world, in his little body, with his little perspective, making his little choices, and God is sovereign and he's carrying out his master plan for his glory. But I don't want you to miss this. God can show his glory in the hardening of a sinner just as much as God can show his glory in the salvation of a sinner. And Pharaoh illustrates that. And so Paul says he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. God is sovereign. And then notice verse 19. The question is asked again. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? Now here you have the question of verse 14 in a more aggravated form. There it's a question. Here it's sort of an accusation. Now, what he's saying is, it was God's will to harden Pharaoh. So in essence, Pharaoh did God's will, right? God's will was that he be hardened. He resist God's plan so that God could display his glory. So you could say, Pharaoh complied with God's will. He cooperated with God's will. So the question is, why does God still find fault? If God is sovereign, how can he hold man responsible? And I want you to notice the answer in verse 20. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Now, I've lived long enough to know that when you get that kind of answer, you've got to realize there's something wrong with your question. My mama taught me that a long time ago. Who are you? to ask that kind of question. So we got to look at this question. There are some problems with this question. And I've picked out at least three problems with this question. The first is, it's based on a wrong concept. You see, the questioner doesn't understand the concept of sovereignty. 
Because the fact that God is sovereign means that he is under no obligation to give a reason for anything that he does. You see, if God has to give a reason for his actions, then he's not sovereign. If God has to answer to you, then he's not sovereign. So the questioner really has a wrong concept of the sovereignty of God. Second problem with this question is it comes from a wrong attitude. This is a question that originates from pride. Because what the questioner is really saying is, I want to sit in judgment on the plans of God. I want God to consult with me before he acts. I want God's justice to conform to my justice. When in essence, which in essence is saying, I have a higher standard of justice than God does. I wish God was just more like me. That's what the questioner is saying. And that is the very essence of sin. Because you see, the very nature of sin is the desire to want to be in the place of God. And I think that's why Paul's answer puts us in our place by saying, who are you? You see, the only position from which I will really learn spiritual things is a position of humility. And the expression of humility is when I confess, God is God and I'm not. And then there's a third thing wrong with this question, and that is it makes a wrong assumption. You see, the questioner is assuming that it's God's hardening that deprives a soul of salvation. The, the, the questioner is making the assumption that if God hadn't hardened Pharaoh's heart, that Pharaoh probably would have been a believer, joined the children of Israel, and followed them to the promised land. That's the assumption that's made here. Or to bring it up to the current day, if God didn't choose some and leave others to be hardened, then all people would have an equal opportunity for salvation. But you see, that's a false assumption. Because the truth is that if God didn't choose some, none would be saved. Earlier in Romans, we saw that in chapter 3 and verse 11. Paul says, there is none who seeks for God. How many people are seeking God? Zero. So you see, men are not lost because they're hardened. Men are hardened because they're lost. And so most people have the assumption that everybody deserves to go to heaven and God is somehow under obligation to get us there. The truth is that nobody deserves to go to heaven. The truth is that the only thing we deserve is hell. And God is not under obligation to do anything. And if anyone gets there, it's only because of the sovereign mercy of God. And so this question is based on a wrong concept that sovereignty means God doesn't have to answer. I'm sorry, sovereignty does mean that God doesn't have to answer to anyone. It's based on a wrong attitude, which is pride, that I want to sit on the throne of God. And it's based on a wrong assumption. We think that if God would just stay out of the way with this choosing thing, more people would get to heaven. Now, I want you to notice again how Paul answers this in verse 20. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? 
Paul says, let's get this thing into perspective. Who are you? Now, we know who you think you are, but he says, who are you? And I want you to circle two words. He says, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Who are you? You're a man answering back to God. Now, I was taught as a child not to talk back to my parents, not to talk back to my teachers, not to talk back to adults. I certainly hope we've learned not to talk back to God. And that's what Paul is telling us here. And then he offers an illustration to help us see who we really are at the end of verse 20. He says, the thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Will it? Now, I was the secret visitor in the four-year-old Sunday school class last week. And all of those, I think there were four and five-year-olds, all of them drew a picture of me. Now, I didn't hear any of those pictures complaining about having long legs and no hair. None of those pictures. I, I complained about it a little bit. But see, those pictures didn't complain to the artist because the artist is sovereign. And we have no right to complain to God either because God is sovereign. And then he gives us another illustration in verse 21. He says, Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? A potter makes out of the same lump of clay an ornamental vase and he sets it over his fireplace. And then he makes a common bowl and he decides he's going to use it as a trash basin. And Paul says, originally the two were from the same lump of clay, but the potter determined their destination. Now, Pharaoh and Moses originally belonged to the same lump of guilty humanity. Moses was inherently no better than the Egyptian king. In fact, it's demonstrated by the fact that Moses was actually a murderer. God chose to have mercy on one and fashion him into a glorious instrument of deliverance. The other he hardened. Now to say that's not fair is as absurd as the clay telling the potter that he can't do whatever he wants with his clay. And then look at verse 22. What if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and make His power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and He did so in order that He might make known the riches of His glory upon vessels of mercy which He prepared beforehand for glory. Now Paul is saying if God just wanted to demonstrate His power and His wrath and His justice, we wouldn't be having this discussion. If that's all God wanted to de demonstrate, He would have obliterated us a long time ago. But Paul says He was patient and He put up with, and He's still putting up with, sinful, unworthy, rebellious men. Why? Because not only does He want to demonstrate His power and His wrath and His justice, He wants to make known the riches of His glory 
on vessels of mercy. And the message is, before you complain about the justice of God, think about whether it was just for God to save you at all. Now, there may be something in verse 22 and 23 that troubles you. Because it says at the end of verse 22, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And the end of verse 23 says, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Now, the implication you might get from your English version is that God prepared certain people from the beginning for destruction. But if you could read this in the Greek language, it's very interesting the way he words this. Because in verse 22, the word prepared is in the passive, which could be translated, these vessels prepared themselves for destruction. When you get to verse 23, the, ver the word prepared is in the active. And that's why if you'll notice in your translation, he puts the pronoun he in verse 23. He doesn't say he, God, prepared for destruction in verse 22. He does say he, God, prepared vessels of mercy for glory in verse 23. Which tells me that God never accepts the responsibility for what sin produces. You are responsible for your sin. And if you end up going to hell, the Bible says you are responsible for that. On the other hand, God tells me that if I go to heaven, God is responsible for that because it's His mercy and His grace and His provision that gets me there. Now, who are these vessels of mercy? Look at verse 24. Even us whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. Who are these vessels of mercy? Paul says, it's us. Called from among the Jews and Gentiles. Which brings us back to the question, what about the Jews? You say, well, has God forgotten his promises? Has he started something new? Has he changed his plans? No. And to show us that, Paul goes back to the Old Testament and says this was foretold ahead of time. Look at verse 25. He says, as he, also, as he says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. This is a quote from Hosea 2.23. Who are those who were not my people? That's us, the Gentiles. He says, I'll call you my people. Who are those who are not beloved? That's the Gentiles. He says, I'll call you beloved. And then verse 26, continuing to quote from Hosea 1.10, he says, And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. We who are not God's people have been called His people, His beloved, His sons. And what Paul is saying is that it was prophesied in the Old Testament that Gentiles who looked like the vessels of wrath would actually become the vessels of God's mercy. And then in verse 27 and 28, he quotes from Isaiah 10, 22 and 23. And he says, And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute His word upon the earth thoroughly and quickly. And here he quotes again to show that God's promises were not made to all of Israel. It's the remnant of believing Israelites that would be saved. And then verse 29, And just as Isaiah foretold, except the Lord of Sabaoth, or the Lord of hosts, had left to us a posterity, 
we would have become as Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. Again, except for God's mercy, Israel would have been obliterated. And here he says they would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah. You ever meet somebody and say, where are you from? They say, well, right now I'm from Cape, but I used to be from Gomorrah. You know, it's right near Sodom. Nobody says that. Why? Because they've been obliterated. You ever meet somebody and they say, well, I'm a Hittite, I'm an Amorite, I'm a Jebusite? No. All those people are gone. But who's been preserved? You can still meet somebody today and they'll say, I'm Jewish. I'm an Israelite. And so God is saying, don't complain that it's just a remnant. Be thankful that God saved any of you at all. And then we come to verse 30, and he says again, what shall we say then? What's the conclusion? What's the answer to verse 19? Why does God still find fault? And notice what he says in the rest of verse 30. The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. Gentiles were not pursuing righteousness. We were not desiring it. We were not running after it. But guess what? We found it. How? By faith. And then in verse 31 he says, But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. In contrast to the Gentiles, Israel was desiring good works. They were running after the law. But Paul says they didn't arrive. Why not? Verse 32, Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. Because they came by works rather than by faith. And you see what he's done? He switched now from the sovereignty of God to the responsibility of man. And then quoting again from the scriptures, he says, they stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Those are two quotes from Isaiah 8.14 and Isaiah 28.16 showing that God predicted ahead of time that some people are going to stumble over Jesus Christ and other people are going to stand on Jesus Christ. And for Israel, Jesus is a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. Why? Because they were looking for a king and he came as a servant. They were looking for him to be wearing a crown. Instead, he was carrying a cross. They were looking for him to come in glory. Instead, he came in humility. They were looking for a lion. They got a lamb. They were looking for a mountain. Instead, they got a stumbling stone. And Christ continues to offend the heart of the natural Israelite, just as he continues to offend the heart of anyone who is pursuing a law of righteousness, anyone who is desiring salvation by works. You know why people stumble over Jesus Christ? You know why people stumble over the stumbling stone? Two reasons. Either they're walking too tall or they're carrying too much luggage, which is good works. And the Bible teaches us you've got to lay those things down, your own good works, and you've got to come to Jesus Christ in spiritual bankruptcy. You know, there are two truths taught in this chapter and throughout Scripture. Those two truths are the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. 
Now, you may think today I didn't do a very good job of preaching this passage. Believe me, I did a good enough job. The problem is I cannot reconcile these two concepts. They are both taught in Scripture. They are both true. I have to hold to both, and I have to teach both. You say, but Dan, I don't understand how they fit together. Well, that's okay. See, do you understand the Trinity? Do you understand how God is three persons and one God? No. Do you understand the Incarnation? Do you understand how Jesus is fully God and fully man? No. You see, when we get into the area of understanding God, we have to reach a point where we say, I back away and concede that God is greater than me. And I don't comprehend everything about Him. You see, error arises when you try to go to one side or the other and understand. You have to take both truths, hold them up as true, and not compromise. You see, I view the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man as two parallel lines of truth in Scripture. They're both taught throughout. The sovereignty of God, the responsibility of man. They don't meet in my mind. But I realize they do meet in the infinite mind of God. And just because I don't understand them doesn't mean that I don't hold them as true. Which really underlines the message of this chapter. You know, I can summarize the message of this chapter in one sentence. And that sentence is, let God be God. He has a right to do whatever he wants. He is not on trial. And you're not going to figure it all out. You see, if God was small enough to me, for me to figure out everything about him, then he wouldn't be big enough to solve my problems. He is the potter, and I'm the clay. And so the message is, let God be God. I'm going to have the praise team come back, and they're going to lead us in a chorus which expresses that very idea. And my desire is today that even though we don't understand all that's being taught here, we need to hold to it as truth, and our prayer needs to be, God, you're the potter, and I'm the clay. Let's stand as we make that our closing prayer together.